Today is Ascension Sunday when we celebrate Christ's ascension into heaven. The Bible teaches us that following his resurrection from the dead in new glorified life, Jesus appeared to the disciples over a 40-day period, showing that he was alive by many infallible proofs and speaking to them concerning the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 1 verse 3. Then on the 40th day, the disciples watched as Jesus ascended up into the sky, into a cloud, and out of their sight. Acts 1, 9. And Mark tells us that Jesus was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Mark 16, 19. That is what we are celebrating this morning. But we are among a relatively few evangelical churches that will do so. Some will note the day, but very few will really celebrate it. But we as modern Christians are the ones that are out of step with the historic church. For you see, the early church celebrated Christ's ascension long before it began celebrating his birth. That gives you an idea of how significant Christ's ascension was to them and how we obviously have lost that significance. Clearly, something has changed in the way that we view Christ's ascension. What has changed is our understanding of what Christ ascended for. If you picture someone ascending a staircase... Whether you get excited or not will depend on your understanding of why they are ascending the staircase. If they are going upstairs to take a nap, that is nothing to get excited about. But if they're going upstairs to be crowned king, that is something to get excited about. That's something to celebrate. It's that difference in understanding That is precisely the difference between the early church's celebration of Christ's ascension and the modern church's nonchalance toward his ascension. You see, Christians of every generation instinctively know that the turning point of history, the great D-Day of history, if you will, is when Jesus begins to assert his lordship Not over heaven, that's a given. But over this fallen world, the world where we live and vote and pay mortgages and raise children. To the majority of the modern evangelical church, of which we're part, that great D-Day, that great turning point of history lies in the future in conjunction with Christ's return, his second advent. To the, to the modern evangelical church, that is when Christ's kingdom will enter this fallen world. That is when Christ will begin to assert his lordship here. And that is what the modern evangelicals have been taught and therefore believe. If that is our understanding, then Christ's ascending into heaven 2,000 years ago was a historical fact, but it is nothing to celebrate. The cause for celebration will be when he comes back, 
and begins to reign in this fallen world. So you can see why the modern evangelical church as a whole does not have much focus at all on Christ's ascension, but it is highly focused and obsessed with his return. But the early church had a different understanding of the turning point of history. And for that matter, so did our pilgrim and Puritan forefathers who came to this land in the early 1600s and gave us the Christian heritage that we love to point back to. Even in the late 1700s, almost 200 years later, that Christian heritage and and worldview and influence still held enough shaping effect that the founding fathers of the United States declared, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Notice the language, self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and that it is to secure those rights given by the Creator that governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. To them, the turning point of history was Christ's ascension and His pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon His disciples ten days later on the day of Pentecost. To them... Christ's ascension is when he was crowned king by the heavenly father. Christ's ascension was when he began to reign and claim his kingly ownership over this fallen world. And Pentecost was when his army, that is us, began the great D-Day invasion of the nations, infused by the power of the reigning king, by the Holy Spirit. That was the turning point of all history. Accordingly, the early church and our pilgrim and Puritan forefathers and foremothers had a very different understanding of the church's marching orders, the Great Commission. To them, the Great Commission was a D-Day invasion order because Christ was claiming everything. All authority, said Jesus, has been given to me, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, for this reason, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Not just scattered individuals or Bible studies or churches. Not just the inner hearts of believers. Not just so-called spiritual things. But all nations, every human institution, all peoples, all marriages, all families, all businesses, all communities, all educational institutions, all governments were to be brought into willing discipleship and glad obedience. Now Christ's kingdom, the victory that he was commanding, was not the imposition 
of a military regime on an unwilling world, which is still to this day the way most modern evangelicals envision the reign of Christ when he comes back. No, this was a willing discipleship brought to a world made willing by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the preaching of the gospel, by the living out of the gospel, by the church. And life, you see, under their view, life, all of life, everything was like Christ's tunic. It was seamless. It was one thing. Winning souls, raising children, building businesses, founding nations. It was all of a piece. All of a piece. And victory in claiming this world for Christ, even though it lay down a long, hard road, even like the long, hard road to victory after D-Day, nevertheless, the ultimate victory was guaranteed. Because you see, Christ has already won the crucial victory over Satan, sin, and death, in his death and resurrection. And now in his ascension... He has been crowned king and has begun his reign and conquest. It was like David defeating Goliath. The crucial victory was won at that point. But that's not the end of the story. Most of us stop reading right when David defeats Goliath. Read on. What's the next thing that happens? Israel, the whole army of Israel is called on to the field to pursue the Philistines. That's after the essential victory. And so Israel charged after the Philistines at this point when they had been helpless to do anything when David fought Goliath. But when he won that victory, they charged the field because now their victory was sure. You see, it was that sense of Christ having already won the decisive victory, of the tide having turned of being on offense, not defense, of sure victory over the long haul, that gave both the early church and our forefathers in this land their humble confidence, their otherworldly thisworldliness, their patient expectancy, and that buoyant spring in their step that was born of biblical optimism and assurance over the long haul. Unfortunately, a couple of centuries ago, a major shift occurred in the evangelical church. A shift that went from seeing Christ's first advent as when he had launched the global D-Day to seeing his first advent essentially as the launching of a global Dunkirk, a massive evacuation. Instead of seeing salvation as the complete victory and restoration of all of God's glorious intentions from the beginning, now salvation was seen as a salvage operation where Jesus would grab a few of Satan's souls and smuggle them across the border to heaven, and then finally at a certain point just get what he could get and get out. 
a completely different view of salvation. And the church's marching orders were seen differently. Instead of the marching orders to go and take every nation, now the marching orders were to remain on the beach and prepare to be evacuated. And the Great Commission meant trying to convince the local villagers to come and join us on the beach so they could be evacuated also. You see, under that view, Christ's ascension lost its importance because it was basically seen like someone going upstairs to take a rest. Christ sitting on his throne was seen like a boxer sitting on his stool between rounds, waiting for the bell to sound so he can re-enter the ring and really engage the fight. And while the church has always confessed that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, there was a footnote placed on that title. And the footnote reads, Not here, not now. Maybe one day. Because the view was Jesus is not presently asserting His Lordship over this world. He's just trying to evacuate us. His victory victory is effectively limited to atoning for sins simply so believers can go to heaven when they die. Now praise God, that's part of His victory, but it's certainly not all of it. This new view of things has shaped the modern evangelical church every ever since. And it has created a number of intractable difficulties, essentially tying one arm behind the church's back. For one thing, life is no longer seamless. It's divided into spiritual things. Those are the things that Christ is currently claiming as Lord. And then there are secular things, those things that Jesus is not claiming. And the church is left with trying her best to influence the secular realm without speaking directly to it in the name of Christ. Here we are sitting on the beach right where we've been for generations. In the meantime, we're trying to get the villagers to come and join us on the beach. In the meantime, our kids are growing up and they're getting married and having grandkids and we're still on the beach. And in the meantime, what do you think is happening to life in the local village? It's going to hell in a handbasket. And we realize that that's starting to affect us and it's starting to affect our children and our grandchildren. And we go, well, somebody's got to do something. Upon what basis? We're the people sitting on the beach waiting for the boats to come and take us away. Truth itself has become bifurcated. And our progressive cultural elites never tire of reminding us that Christian truth is private truth. It's purely personal truth, which does not belong in the public square. All of this explains why the early church and our pilgrim and Puritan forefathers despite their vastly inferior numbers and resources, were far more potent than we are. To put it bluntly, they were blessed 
in a way that we aren't because they honored Christ as Lord in a way that we don't. Now, I am not suggesting that we worship our forefathers or their faith. I am suggesting that we look where they looked to find that faith, which is the scriptures. But we must do so with an openness to the possibility that they had Christ's lordship right and we have it wrong. And on that place, there is no better place to, and on that point, there is no better place to begin than with the ascension of Christ into heaven. Daniel 7, which we've already read this morning, teaches us that Christ's ascension was when he came before the ancient of days and received dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Revelation 12, which we've also read, tells us that Christ's ascension was when Jesus, the one born to rule all nations with a rod of iron, was caught up to the throne of God. It tells us that that was when the devil was cast out of heaven because with Jesus' conquest over sin and death, the devil had no more rightful accusation he could bring against God's people. And having lost his case, he was thrown down the courthouse steps. It tells us that Christ's ascension was when God's verdict was proclaimed. Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that Christ's kingdom here is bracketed by two great resurrections. The resurrection of Christ, he is the first fruit, that happened 2,000 years ago. Then the resurrection of life for those who belong to Christ at his coming. Christ's resurrection represented the inauguration of the kingdom. The resurrection of life in conjunction with Christ's return represents the culmination or perfection of the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, afterwards those who were Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. Then is not when comes the beginning of the kingdom. Then is what when comes the perfection of the kingdom. When Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, this is why the early Christians and our pilgrim and Puritan forefathers celebrated Christ's ascension, because they got the fact that it was his coronation. It is when he gained all authority, not only over heaven, but over this fallen and darkened planet, where heretofore the shadow kingdom of Satan had held people enthralled 
by the power of sin and death. But now a new day had dawned. For the Son of Righteousness had risen with healing in His wings. And today, sure, Satan is desperately trying to hold out and to hold on to whomever and whatever he can. And one of his most powerful weapons is the psyops operation, whereby he convinces Christ's people that the D-Day invasion order is really a Dunkirk evacuation order. That is what we have to shake off and repent from. And we begin that today by celebrating the true meaning of Christ's ascension. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.